This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we're kicking off a new series on hidden emotions. We'll be playing stories on loneliness, guilt, humiliation, and jealousy. We'll be weaving together stories as well as expert opinion, sometimes from the same person. Today, we're going to start with a story about loneliness. My guest is David, and he's a therapist. I'm telling you this because you'll notice that sometimes he says I, and sometimes he says he or the kid when he's talking about himself as a child. It might be a little confusing at points, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. Here's David. So um, this is David from Rhode Island. And um, the story that I want to tell is a little bit about the strange loneliness uh, that I've carried within me for a long time. I don't think I even knew it. It's kind of like, on the one hand, um, I'm surrounded by people, but there's sort of a way in which I, um, I sort of keep them at a distance. Um, that's kind of one of the ways it shows up. The other way it shows up is, um, more in the past when I would try to sit down to write or uh, to do projects that kind of mattered to me, I would sit down and I'd get really excited and I'd start writing and it was just impossible for me to corral my mind into focus. Um, I may have a day or two or three where I could write for a while and then I'd have a week where I couldn't go near it. It was just too much agitation and confusion and overwhelm. kind of drove me crazy. And I was writing in my journal one day you know, feeling that kind of familiar sort of mixture of agitation and loneliness. And I had this memory. In the memory, I'm um, sitting at this little makeshift desk that my dad built for me. And I don't know why, but I'm thinking I'm doing like social studies or something. And I just had this feeling of feeling like overwhelmed and bored. Um, I don't think the schoolwork was terribly hard. Social studies something that I could easily do. I just felt overwhelmed by it and I felt bored. And then I felt bad, maybe a little ashamed even, that I just couldn't get my mind to want to engage. Um, you know, even as I'm speaking, I feel kind of sad, a little sick to my stomach. So in some ways that's the whole memory, right? So I'm back in the room with that kid, um, I can see his aloneness. And I don't, I think one of the reasons he's feeling kind of strange or like embarrassed at feeling alone and overwhelmed is he's kind of surrounded by bounty. I mean, it's a, it's a nice house in a suburban neighborhood. There are gardens out the window. His parents are really, really nice people. However, uh, if you ever asked him, would he go to mom or dad to talk about how he's feeling? Like it wouldn't even occur to him. There's two other memories that are sort of examples of this. I remember being younger and I think I saw like the old Gothic Frankenstein movie, which was so great. But then when I went to bed, I was feeling really scared. And I remember standing at the top of the stairs, mom and dad are down at the bottom of the stairs. And I remember calling to them and, like I wanted to tell them I was a little scared, 
But as soon as they came to the stairs, I just sort of said, like it just suddenly didn't make any sense what I was going to say to them. So I just said, never mind. And then I put myself to bed. Um, there's one other occasion like that when I was like maybe 13. I remember lying in my bed and I was having this thought, this kind of revelation. Like I couldn't figure out how other people could have their own independent consciousness or life. So I, I called my dad up to my room to like explain this weird little conundrum I was having in my head. Yeah, it makes me sad. So I remember him coming into the room. Again, these are really nice people. Um, but when he came in, I was about to explain to him, and I just said, never mind. So let me give a little more context and then I'm going to go right back to that kid with the social studies homework. Uh, so my parents are Holocaust survivors, so, but they don't consider themselves survivors because neither of them actually were in the camps and they never talked about it. Um, I remember once when I was in college trying to have a conversation with dad about it. I was playing basketball outside and I was asking him all about it. Somebody called him into the house for him and he said he'd be right back and he just never came back. <laughs> so the Holocaust was there. Like my mom, when she was four years old, she was in a, uh, in Romania, I think it is the Bukovina ghetto crammed into one of a small apartment, like a, uh, it was like a hidden apartment at the top of a building. Um, and she describes how either she saw or all the family members, extended family, were in one apartment looking out the window watching all the men in her building being shot. So that's my, one of my mom's earliest memories. She's four years old. Uh, there are other memories that I got later on when she was you know, hiding from various invading forces, the Romanians, uh, the Germans. Um, so that was her childhood. My dad was a hidden child, left Belgium at seven. The city was being bombed. He's chased all over. He ends up hiding with the Huguenot family, tending goats at the age of like eight, nine. So anyway, both my parents have this like totally disrupted, traumatized childhood. Um, so somehow there's a context for why this kid's sitting at his desk. Really nice parents. If you met them, you'd love them. And why he knows not to go to them for comfort. So how does he know not to go to his mom? He doesn't know. I know because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I can't. I, you know, I love my mom. She's great. Her main thing is when she looks at me, she wants to see that I'm okay, that I'm happy and healthy and okay. There's a deep, desperate need to know that I'm okay. So her eyes say, you're okay, right? Because if I'm upset, she evacuates her eyes. She's gone. 
not because she's mean, not because she wants to, not because she doesn't want to take really, really good care of me, but because I think it just terrifies her. My dad, he's a guy who was so alone as a kid, alone and scared and separated from his family, that whenever he's upset, he gets just loud and cranky and then ashamed at his loud crankiness, or he disappears into reading in magazines and it's just, or we start something and then he's gone. Again, really good guy. Both smart, lovely people, but um, both are burdened, I think, with huge loneliness. So back to the kid at his desk. I can understand why that kid, it would never occur to him to reach out to mom or dad. Um, but what he did start to do, probably at the age of 12, he began to collect pornography. Um, I remember walking to um, the temple where he'd go to Hebrew school. And on the way back, <laughs> there was a little five and dime store and he used to pick up uh, pornographic magazines there. And I had a collection uh, in my closet. You know, it's funny, as I'm remembering right now, I remember, you know, as a kid, I'd, I'd look through my parents' bedroom and their drawers and stuff, and I found three, four, five of my own porn magazines in my father's drawer. I was like, what the? It's just bizarre. But it makes total sense. I can see this little boy, my dad, pilfering uh, his son's porn. And um, just aware that there are these two lonely little boys separated by two or three rooms who don't have a clue about each other. When I reconnected with this memory, my own sort of agitation, my own loneliness got, became a lot clearer to me. Uh, and even right now as I'm speaking about the kid and how he would collect his magazines and his little journey <laughs> to these stores around town to collect them. I'm just feeling, um, I'm feeling connected to that little guy. I'm feeling appreciation for his ingenuity. You know, sort of the natural intelligence that was trying to find a way to soothe himself in a very confusing situation. Again, it's so confusing that you know, we're in the United States. We're not in Wartown anywhere. And yet there's this incredible agitation and aloneness. And then shame about it because it doesn't make sense. But he finds ways to calm himself. They don't serve in the long run. But I just sort of have a, a sense of affection and respect for what he's trying to do. And I also, and when I first had this memory, I sort of sat down with this little guy in my mind and said, like, what's the big deal? It's just freaking social studies. And it was like he was talking back to me and he just kind of said, um, you know, he, he said, can you stay here with me? You know, it's like I do with my daughter, when she has a stupid textbook to read. She just wants me to sit there and read it with her. And then she can plow through it. It just blows my mind. And what that little kid told me is that 
he'll do anything. He doesn't care what it is. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice if it were really meaningful and stuff, but he'll do the social studies. But he just needed someone um, just to sort of have a little comfort and connection. I, he could have relaxed into so many more things. David, as I was listening to you, I could I could watch my mind kind of swinging at first, telling myself like, oh, okay, this is like a universal story of adolescent loneliness and sort of adolescent angst and alienation, you know, feeling disconnected and like no one can understand me. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, this is sort of just defines the adolescent experience. And then you tell me that your parents, you know, were Holocaust survivors and about the way that they needed, it's almost like they needed to be comforted by you. And then I think, oh, okay, this is not a, a universal story. This is very, very particular to their trauma. But then as you describe it more, I kind of find myself almost coming back full circle again to thinking about how often as parents, we want to be reassured that our children are okay. And I came back almost to this feeling of, yes, that your parents trauma was very particular and their their fear and their agitation and their loneliness in some ways was very was extreme you know as a result of devastation of the war and yet there yet there is still something quite universal i think in parents <laughs> wanting to be reassured by their children and their children facing that deep disappointment of realizing that their parents don't quite know how to be there for them in the way they long for. I know you're a parent too, and I know you you know you work with a lot of people. What do you what do you think about that? Well, I, I kind of like like what you're saying. Um, you know, I I think the particular circumstances just amplify or the universal finds a particular expression in that particular history. So my own anxiety, you know, my son's in college studying music and I have to work really hard not to let my worry and anxiety disrupt the space that we have between us to talk. Uh, so that's at one end of the continuum, perhaps. I've had more therapy than I should probably publicly admit. But as a result, I mean, I can manage my own anxiety more effectively than some. But it's taken a lot of work. Um, my parents were clueless about it. So this kid, me, was faced with a, an inexplicable, disproportionate, he didn't even know what it was, but it, it was terror. You know, my mom, it was terror. It's like, what? I, should I be afraid? <laughs> like, what's going, you know? Bounty, right? My life is good. Should I be? So, um... So you experience this terror, their terror, 
it doesn't make any sense to you at all. They're good people. Your life is fundamentally safe and secure. And you said, I felt shame because it didn't make sense. So you have this experience that you can't even understand or name, and then that leads to you feeling shame. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so there are two or three pieces there. One, you're just reminding me. Um, because both of my parents are shackled, you know, handicapped by their unexplored trauma. As I become an adolescent, I start to feel contempt for them because they're incompetent in terms of greeting my adolescent energies. On the one hand, I had contempt for them. So I had shame about that. I felt bad about that. But I also like, why am I not happy? I didn't know why I was anxious. I didn't even know that I was anxious. I just felt bad for not, for being out of sorts and lost. And then just like, I don't, there's no good excuse. I just, it didn't make any sense. Um, right, so it didn't feel legitimate somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And later on, like when I was much older, I started sort of researching, oh, I got a weird story. I was doing body work. Somebody like who does uh, PT and craniosacral, we were doing trades because I was in a hospital setting and I would, she would send me clients, I would send her clients. She said, well, why don't I show you what I do? She didn't know anything about me. She started working on my body and she looked up at me and said, are your parents Holocaust survivors? I was like, uh, yeah, what? She says, well, in our training, we were told that when you have something going on and run your spleen or something, I don't remember exactly, it usually means intergenerational trauma is present in your body. So, and then since then I've read research about like genetic markers, like things that um, are neurologically, biological evidence of, you know, a history of trauma in your parents. Like things are transmitted biologically to your brain. So the curious thing for like, I know for the children of Holocaust survivors is that they're in the land of milk and honey but we're neurotic as all get out. And why? Um, yeah, that's yeah. why I became a therapist. Right? No, and that feels so shameful. Like, why right. am I not well-adjusted and grateful? Like, right, exactly. Yes, What's yes. wrong with me? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah so. The other thing I, w I was struck by listening to your story is how often you wanted to tell me about the goodness of your parents. You wanted to really say, you know, they're good, loving people. And, um, you know, anytime that someone has suffered the way they did, uh, you know, it's, it's profound. It's sort of like, how dare we say anything ill of them? But I wondered about that tension between having so much respect and compassion for their suffering while holding on to, you know, how difficult it was for you to be their child and if you could speak to that that conflict and how you're trying to sort yeah. of take care of both of you at the same time. Yeah, well, there's a sort of reflexive caretaking that I always did. Um, you know, just at one level being the good boy, being extremely presentable to their friends, being kind of naturally skillful at sort of massaging social situations and making them proud of me. At another level, I was, you know, have this evolving contempt um, disconnection, avoidance, all of that. So it wasn't until quite a bit later in life, I'd say, you know, slow evolution, my thirties, forties, and certainly now in my fifties, 
that as I began to sort of tend my own achiness, what I would just find myself, like I would just find myself crying over my father sitting in these fields tending goats. I would just cry and cry and cry and cry and cry. My mom, she was so much more opaque because her terror felt so much more primordial to me, just like was transmitted through her eyes. So it's really only in the last five or 10 years that I could begin to feel more than an intellectual appreciation for them. But it took a long while, it's, you know, because your body is organized to like turn away. It's like, I'm not going to find what, what I want here. I just, I knew this, my body just knew it immediately. Go away. There's nothing here for you. Yeah. Food shelter. Don't want to knock that. But the emotional level, turn away. So often I find myself saying to the people I work with in therapy that as we have compassion for ourselves, we end up having more compassion for other people. It's sort of fundamentally why therapy is not a total exercise of self-indulgence. Right. It actually is, you know, almost like a school of love. It's a school for being able to be more intimate. Right. And so I want to ask you, in your relationship with your parents, do you feel like as you have had compassion for that boy in you, that you've, it sounds like it actually, that you've had more and more compassion initially for your father and increasingly for your mother. Is, is that right? Yeah. Let me tell you two recent vignettes. Um, we throw parties at our house, dance parties. And um, I think three years ago, we had a, and outside in our back little patio, a little postage stamp backyard. And we were playing music. And um, my mom just wants to be in everything. So and she was out there. And she and I danced, did a slow dance together. And um, you could feel her whole body just instantly melt. Um, it is just the most dear, relaxed, intimate play. You know, it's like the kind of play that mom should have been able to initiate where we could hang out in that space together. But she can't, but I can. And it's just sublime. Um, and I did the same with my father. He and I slow danced together. And you could just feel him totally relax. And we could just sort of, like I know how to hold that space and be in it. I have to stay on it because my viscera still do the turning away and I have to really stay present so those parts in me, those places in me can relax and lead me into connection. So, yeah. It's wonderful to hear that and picture it. So as I'm listening to you tell this story, David, I'm thinking, of course, about like, what is loneliness anyway, you know, and like, how do we all experience it? And how is this connected to what everyone experiences? A place in your story that I felt so touched was in those repeated experiences of never mind. And I'm, I'm wondering about whether you think that moment of giving up is part of loneliness, generally speaking, like, I'm not going to find it outside myself. And I have to somehow figure out how to be okay or how to survive even when I can't find it from others. If t Tell me, does that resonate for you, that, that giving up moment and how it connects to loneliness? 
yeah. So I mean, I have thoughts about giving up. There's this longing. I I did go to the top of the stairs. <laughs> I think we're born with this organic impulse to connect. It's just who we are. But you know, when we're traumatized or when violence has been done to us, we contract. You know, we pull in. And it's almost scarier to reach out and 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 see that connection exploded than it is to sort of stay inside. Um, and I think it's really reinforced by our society in so many ways. So I know that that lonely kid at the desk, his want, you know, dies on the vine. And so loneliness developed, evolved, and, you know, I call it my private purgatory and I decorate it with pornography and weed and whatever it is I need to do to make that a place that I can tolerate being. But the idea that you have something to offer me that would make me feel good, it's like was foreign to me for a long time. Like, are you kidding me? It's like, no, you're irrelevant. I was very touched by you saying the way you talked about the porn, the way you talked about it as that ingenuity of that kid about if you couldn't turn to people, you know, you had to find some way to, to comfort yourself. And, uh, you know, porn is very shamed and yes, there's all this politics of it and so on that are exploitative, but it's very, it's very touching to hear the, the way that you have such compassion for that kid and you see it as his resourcefulness and his ingenuity. Um, and yet I was also struck like that the intensity of discovering that your father had pilfered your porn. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and that neither of you ever acknowledged it. So there's this like secret between you. He knows and you know that you're each using this porn. No one's acknowledging it. Because one of the legacies of secrets in a family is the kind of isolation that they engender. And so I'm, I'm struck at sort of this other aspect of the loneliness between you and your father that here's this thing you're both doing and enjoying, but it can't be acknowledged. So that there's this, on the one hand, there's this bond, you could say, uh, but on the other hand, it's very, very separating. And yeah, isolating. so our, we're bonded around our mutual shame or whatever, because if it, we're keeping it secret, it's a, it's like a two magnet magnets, you know, positive poles pushing each other away. It's like, it strengthens the separation. Next week, we'll be telling more stories about loneliness and also talking to Dr. Amy Banks about the neuroscience of social isolation. Thank you so much, David. Any last thing that you... Um, I, at some point, this, this should be in the picture. Um, that unhealed trauma from our, our, uh, our families will find its way into your life. Um, and it doesn't mean you're crazy. That just means there's unfinished business that's just waiting for the healing it never got in that previous generation. It just it's just a fact. And and it's and it's healable. So. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate talking with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Really nice to meet you. 
If you like the show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>